busy, but you want the best for your kids. We're here to help. This is Hope and Will, a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Parenting is about caring for a wide range of physical and emotional needs, not being perfect. Playing, getting dirty, offering comfort, providing companionship, inspiring confidence, instilling strength, and of course, bursting with unconditional love. It's no surprise that given those attributes, dogs often play an important role in families' lives. As we close out the first season of our podcast, we're grateful to you, our listeners, You've made time to listen to stories of families who've walked our halls, as well as caregivers who dedicate their lives to keeping kids out of our halls. Along the way, you've made us a top-ranked parenting podcast. As a thank you, we're closing out our inaugural season with a very special conversation, a behind-the-scenes, all-access pass to get up close and personal with the most popular colleagues in the world, our furry fleet of facility dogs. You may not know that back in 2009, it was a team of innovators here at Children's who pioneered the first hospital-based facility dog program for kids. Today's guests will share never-before-heard stories featuring our Canine for Kids program. You'll learn what it takes to become a facility dog, as well as the impact dogs can make on sick and injured kids, from helping to reduce the need for sedation to providing comfort after trauma. Buckle up, you're about to laugh, cry, and hear stories sure to stay with you for a lifetime. To kick off this special episode, I have the honor of being joined by Diane Henley. Now, Diane experienced the power of the dogs, especially a golden doodle named Tidings. Her daughter was recovering from a life-threatening infection that left her in a coma. Diane, thanks for being with us. I I can't imagine what it's like to have your child sitting there before you for 30 days in this comfort of tidings. I can't wait to hear a little bit about your experience. But first, I just want to hear a bit about your family. You have four children, actually, right? I sure do. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about them. Sure. My youngest, Luke, is seven. And then Emma, who was the one who initially connected with tidings is nine. I have an 11-year-old named Evelyn and a 13-year-old named Anna. Um, And they are absolutely wonderful and sometimes a handful. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. And, you know, when you are in that situation where Emma, you know, had this sudden and, of course, scary illness, it turned your world, no doubt, upside down. Can you share with us a little bit about what happened? We had never had any significant medical problems in our family or big things to deal with on the medical side of things. So when Emma, this was back in fall of 2021, Emma, who was seven at the time, started having just over the course of a few days, some really scary, frightening neurological changes. We felt like the Emma that we knew was slipping away really quickly, but it was not clear what exactly was causing it or what was going on. So we ended up in emergency department at Eggleston basically just desperate for help. We knew something was very, very wrong, but we weren't sure what. So the unknown of that was was very scary for all of us. What was the prognosis when she first came in? When they initially started doing her medical workup in the ED and then eventually progressed to the ICU, some of the things on their radar were, could this be a brain tumor? 
could there be some other sort of infection going on in her brain that we haven't been able to detect yet? So they started doing MRIs and CT scans. They did a lumbar puncture to check and see if there was an infection that was detectable. But the diagnosis didn't become clear for a while. But over the course of the next couple of months, most doctors agreed they thought it was what they called a post-infectious encephalitis, which basically just means her body was exposed to an infection, her immune system effectively fought that off, but then kind of went into overdrive and attacked her brain. And so prognosis was very unknown as we quickly made our way up to the ICU. They really were not sure what the outcome would be. So you can only imagine the helplessness you felt in those months. And then you're faced with her slipping into a coma. Tell me about when you met Dr. Stockwell and Tidings, of course, the facility dog that came with her. Part of the treatment for her encephalitis was a procedure called plasmapheresis, where they basically just filtered her blood volume to get rid of antibodies that her immune system was producing. And so um, this happened in the ICU. And during that time and the time you know, surrounding it, she was asleep and on a ventilator. And so this was over 30 days that, that she spent in that kind of state. When it finally came time to wake her back up and take the breathing tube out, it was very frightening for her. She was in the same kind of unknown state that we were, but also to wake up and realize that you've missed half of your fall of second grade, that you've missed dressing up with your family for Halloween, that you've missed interactions with your friends, that you have no idea why you can no longer walk, why your voice doesn't work. All of these things that had happened to her body over the previous month or month and a half she was waking up and realizing, and it was very frightening for her. And so when Dr. Stockwell brought Tidings in for the first time, Tidings was just such a calming present in that moment when Emma had been faced with staff and doctors coming in to do neurological assessments and asking her questions. Tidings was able to just enter, not ask any questions, not expect anything of her, and just be a comforting presence to her. We just watched the relief in Emma's body. You know, we watched her heart rate go down. We watched the peace on her face that, you know, she's sort of grappling with so many other questions. And Tidings was warm and fuzzy and big and on her bed. And to watch the the joy and the peace enter into that space instead of more questions and more assessments was a joy for all of us to watch. Can you share some of those moments, some of those interactions between the two of them where you really realized that this was... A special bond, unlike any other that you would see between maybe a child and a dog. When her siblings had not been able to come visit and she hadn't seen them in a month, and when she hadn't been able to have friends come visit, just having a connection to someone that wasn't her mom or her dad or her nurse or her doctor <laughs> meant a lot to her. And then when we started moving towards a little bit of early rehabilitation, her learning to walk again, it's frustrating work. It's frustrating work to learn to come back from something like that. And they would bring Tidings in on his leash and they would have him walking alongside her. And all of a sudden she felt like, I'm not just doing physical therapy, like I'm taking the dog for a walk. That added to just a level of motivation to her recovery and to her rehab that, that I'm not sure that she would have had or experienced before. And I think for my husband and I, I mean, as a mother, like you, you fight really hard to be okay even when your kids are not okay. But it's so hard. Um, it's so hard to. It's so hard. Right. To watch 
the darkest thing I can think of that we've we've ever walked through was watching some of her suffering. And just to watch, you know, the nurses and the doctors were absolutely phenomenal. Some of those ICU nurses we still have meaningful relationships with. They took beautiful care of Emma. But tidings also brought an aspect of of joy into her life and of light into a place that felt very dark and to a season of suffering. He brought positive, wonderful memories that we want to hold on to for the rest of our lives. Did you meet other facility dogs? We did. We did. Tidings definitely, I think, had the biggest impact on Emma while we were there. But we moved to Scottish Rite after the ICU to do some inpatient rehab with Emma. And so over the course of different places we were, we also met Flo and Aries and Olaf. And I can remember specifically there was one team of doctors that came by several times and brought Olaf with them because they noticed that Emma was just able to engage a lot more and have a little bit more stamina if Olaf was also there. In closing, I just want to get an idea from you. How's Emma now? How is she doing? Yeah, she's <laughs> and how's she's the family? doing wonderfully. I am so oh, happy good. to report that the story was a happy ending. She's thriving. She's doing really well. And we are so thankful. I'm so happy for you to hear that. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much, Lynn. Now stick around because I'm about to be joined by three very special women who for more than a decade have been making experiences like the Henleys possible. I now have the honor of welcoming Lisa Kinzel, Dr. Janice Stockwell, and Kara Klein to the show. And it was back in 2009 that Lisa championed this program into existence. The program grew and grew, and she encountered so many enthusiastic and willing partners. You're going to see why. And among them were Dr. Stockwell and Kara. So ladies, thank you so much for being with me. My gosh, I just have a smile across my face because... I've been looking into all of the wonderful things this program has done. So Lisa, I'm thrilled to start with you. To go back to those early days when you started the program, what brought this all to life and what was your role at Children's at the time? As manager for volunteer services at the Scottish Rite campus, I got to work with all these wonderful volunteers who were there just out of the goodness of their heart to help those patients and their families. And I had also been a volunteer for Canine Assistance which is an organization here uh, close by that trains dogs for special individual disabilities and other special needs. And they actually started having dogs come to the hospital for their training. It was wonderful to see these volunteers and the dogs. And at the time, the dogs would be there maybe an hour for one day a week. When these dogs began coming from canine assistance, And these were marvelous dogs, just so well taught about being appropriate in a medical facility and what it was like to be with these patients and these families in need. It was obvious that an hour, one day a week was not going to be enough for some of these kids. One of the volunteers said, you know, these dogs need to be here full time. So it was from that and the, the just the difference that it made. It was like, yes, we need to have a dog full-time at the hospital for those patients in need so they don't have to wait another week to see somebody. And how do you even make something like that a reality? I mean, it's a hospital. It can be really challenging to have even visitors, (laughs) let alone an animal. So how did you bring this all to fruition? Animals, actually, dogs have been part of a hospital for many, many, many years. But 
they were in a setting where it was a group setting and a non-clinical area. And so it was not uncommon to see a dog in a hospital. What was uncommon was to actually have a dog who was specifically trained for a hospital for an individual that had physical disabilities and to actually be part of a clinical, medical, even procedures so that they were utilizing these dogs as another tool in a wonderful medical toolbox. Tell me a little bit about that first dog. I was mentioning earlier how much I'd sort of fallen in love with Casper, as everyone has. He was three-quarters golden retriever, a quarter lab. But you knew him as something so much more than that and the impact that he had on the patients. One story in particular, a little boy, Creed, who was really, really ill and spent so much time in the hospital. And it was just pretty incredible to hear more about that story. I'd love for you to share with the listeners. Creed is quite the character. And for the time that we knew Creed, he was in the hospital a lot longer than he was out of the hospital. So we did get to spend a lot of time with him. And he didn't ever, I think, look at Casper as a dog. He just immediately gravitated towards Casper and they were just best friends. It was this little boy went through so, so much trauma. And to see the difference that his buddy Casper could make for for him when he was having to go through these procedures was just amazing. And there was times when we would go and visit him and I didn't even have to tell Casper what room he was in. He automatically knew where his little buddy was. It was pretty amazing. And just to read about how he knew how to comfort Creed. And in one particular instance, his mother believes Creed was really, his life was saved by Casper. Can you share that with us? Yes, absolutely. As I said before, Creed was very, very ill. It had so many procedures. And we were actually called to the PICU one day because the clinicians felt as though we were going to be down there and seeing Creed for the very last time. So we loaded up in the car and we went down and Creed, in fact, was not responding. And we put Casper up in bed with Creed and put Creed's hand on top of Casper's paw. And we said, Creed, um, Caspi's here, you know, he's here for you. And his mom looked down and said, oh my gosh, Creed's hand just moved. And one of the nurses actually said, that dog just brought that boy back to life. And that was a incredible day. Incredible. And he was by his side through more treatments and more treatments. And his mom describes that final moment when Casper comforted Creed before, as mom described, he got his wings. Tell us about that. Oh, gosh, we had been there for so many different procedures. And the very last time before Creed passed away, we were on our way to the hospital. And unfortunately, we had gotten there too late. And Creed had already passed. It was the first time that Casper did not jump up in bed with him. He just knew immediately. He just lay down on the floor and just knew that his little buddy was already gone. It does. It just brings tears to your eyes to think about this incredible bond from that first dog. And Casper went on for years to make that kind of an impact. And the program grew and grew with more and more dogs because the, you saw the impact in those early days how did you continue to grow this? And, and how did you know the program was going to be so successful? I think anybody that has seen a dog and a child together knows that this is going to be successful. 
And it, it took a village. You know, I always say it, it took a village because I needed buy-in from the medical staff. I needed infection control. I needed buy-in from entire staff seeing a dog in a hospital on a daily basis. And we had to start writing policies and procedures. And then it was to grow the program, you need the right person behind the leash. And these wonderful handlers, we all did this out of a labor of love and respect for the organization, for children, for what we do. So then it became, well, who's going to pay for the dog food? Who's going to give, you know, medical treatments and, and pay the bills? So then it was getting the foundation involved and trying to find donors to grow this program and to take care of the dogs that we have and the expenses that they had. So it was a joint effort. The marketing and PR team was just all on board. It's about not just being there and seeing it, but it's being able to share the stories. And we all have a million of them. I was going to say, can you share a story in particular that just really is important to put into perspective of how impactful these dogs are? When Casper first started, we were learning together. We had met up with a very young four-year-old who had a abdominal tumor. She was having great difficulty, great anxiety, so it would always calm her before and after the procedure to have Casper with her. They wanted her to be able to be discharged, and unfortunately, she was not able to do that until she could get up and walk, and she refused. She would not walk. She wouldn't do it for her mom or grandmother, her father, for the doctor. She would not. So I happened to walk in with Casper and said, if you could walk Casper, would you get up and walk? She did. And she made two laps around the nurse's station and she got to go home and it was Christmas Eve. I just want to get an idea of what you're feeling right now, because it's got to be such pride and emotion to understand this impact that a golden retriever can have on a child that's suffering so much. Tell me what you're feeling. I'm just, like you said, I am just incredibly proud, but it's not just the dogs that I'm proud of. I mean, it's the whole staff. I mean, everybody embraced it. I could not have done it by myself. It really was wonderful to see how the clinical staff looked at this dog and said, hmm, how can I incorporate using this dog into making this child better. I know what the impact has been at children's, but I would to think about that multiplied by however many dogs are in 50 other pediatric hospitals. That is amazing. That is truly amazing. And it really goes to show your vision in those early days that everybody else knew what it could become. And that's how it grew into this whole incredible fleet of dogs in the program. Kara, I want to ask you, you know, you were one of the first handlers to join Lisa and support this journey. Tell us why you became involved. I had been working as a child life specialist for about two years. And uh, child life specialists work typically in pediatric hospitals to help patients cope with being in the hospital, um, help reduce their anxiety, whether that's through diagnosis teaching in a developmentally appropriate way or through preparing them for a test or procedure that they're about to have. And at the time, I was working in our child advocacy center where we see patients when there's an allegation of child abuse. 
So my job was to prepare those patients for their exams that they would have and then also for what we call a forensic interview, which is where a patient is going to disclose everything that happened to them. And you can imagine that must be they've already endured a lot of stress and trauma. And this exam or this forensic interview has the potential to have trauma as well if the patient's not prepared for it properly. So I had seen Lisa and Casper in the hallway and said, you know, wouldn't it be great if you guys came over to our clinic to spend some time with our patients? And it's an appointment-based clinic. We have patients come for an hour to two hours. So we don't really have a lot of time to build rapport with that patient and to make sure that they feel comfortable and safe in their environment. So when Lisa came over with Casper the first time, it was crazy the difference that they made in such a short amount of time to make that patient open up and feel comfortable with the staff, with the setting, and with everything that was going to happen. It was instantaneous. And that's the one thing that dogs, we have found that dogs have, is that ability to connect with patients on a far grander scale than we can as humans. So seeing them, I said, we need to do this. We need to get a dog here in our child advocacy center because Lisa, she was a one-man show. She was covering the entire hospital (laughs) with Casper because not only was I asking for, hey, can you come with Casper? Every other clinic, every other unit was saying, come with Casper. I got my steps in. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to do it. So to Casper... I know what you're describing. I've seen it with my own dog, Captain, and my son. When he's upset, he'll say, will you send Captain up here? And I can't explain it. It's like he knows exactly what he's going through and how to calm him. It's so beautiful that you can then bring that into a setting where children are having such a difficult time, whether it's because of an injury or whether it's because of his illness or whether it's because of abuse. And one of those dogs is Bella. Kara, that was your dog that you were handling And tell us about, you had Bella for a decade. I know there's probably a million stories, but when I heard Lisa's, I have to ask you, what's a story that stands out in your mind? Bella, one of the things that Canine Assistance does a really great job at is matching the dogs for the unit that they are going to be in. So they take a look at what's your need on that unit. Are you going to really be getting this dog involved in physical therapy? Is this dog going to be doing more snuggling in a bed? Which snuggling is a skill that our dogs are really trained to. We don't really think of that, but being able to lay still in a bed for a long period of time without moving is a skill that these dogs possess. So they knew what my patient population was and what we really needed Bella to do was be calm. We needed her to just lay there and be loved on with not much being asked of her. She was matched perfectly for the environment because she just knew what that patient needed. She knew if they needed a snuggle on the legs, if they wanted her to lay at their feet. But one of my, I think, favorite stories, which is always one that I keeps me going back, is this is why I do what I do. Going back to the patient population, thinking about how hard it must be to go through what they've gone through and then to come to an appointment, just wishing everything would be done and everything would be over. Oftentimes, our patients try and exert a bit of control over the situation by saying, I don't want to do it. And we're never going to say, no, you have to do it. And I had a particular patient, a teenager that just was adamant, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And we spent a long time together, probably about an hour of time of asking the whys and how can we help and how can we support you? We brought Bella in 
the room and she insisted like as long as Bella's like laying on the exam table with me um I will do the exam and she did and Bella acted as a pillow the patient laid on Bella and Bella had this instinctive ability to know again what the patient needed and she put Bella wrapped her head on top of her shoulder um which sort of acted as like a soft restraint but it gave her just that perfect opportunity to be petting Bella throughout the entire exam and at the very end I was like you know, signing my chart. And I don't think she realized I could hear her, but she was laying on the floor um, on top of Bella and said, I couldn't have done this without you. So just knowing what an impact Bella had in that moment was like, I could do this for the rest of my life because there are so many handlers that are like me that experience this on a daily basis of our dogs being able to do something that is really difficult for a human or, you know, one of our employees to be able to do. Yeah. And I think if anyone is listening right now and doesn't have a dog, they're likely going out and getting a dog for their children right now because it is so true. It's just so powerful what animals can bring in these situations. Dr. Stockwell, I would imagine that's why you became a handler and why you got involved as well, seeing the impact that Kara and Lisa were all having. So when you're a doctor and you've got to deal with really fragile patients, it can probably give you some concern, you know, even just hearing Kara describe the dog being up there laying on the lap of one of these children. You're like, what about the needles that are in their arms and things like that? So tell me how you approach this when you first started. Experience layers upon experience. And I had the privilege of seeing how Casper had interacted primarily with Creed, because that was really our first experience in the pediatric ICU for having a dog. I was very fortunate in that canine assistants picked the most perfect dog ever for the pediatric ICU. And what's instinctual versus what they train, I'll never know. But my golden doodle was a big, giant guy, an 84-pound golden doodle. And he was chosen because he was big enough to easily get on a bed if we wanted him to get on the bed. He was also big enough that if we had a child, say, with spine trauma or leg trauma or had abdominal surgery and we did not want the dog to get on the bed, that he was big enough for us to just walk him next to the bed and he could put his head on the bed and then we could rest the child's hand on his head. When he got up in bed with a kiddo, he would never take food off the trays. He knew when to lay there. He loved getting petted, which I think may be the first job requirement for these guys. But there was just some kind of innate sense that these pups have. And for the pediatric ICU, we had one who was not only able to show compassion for the children, and you have to keep in mind that in the ICU, a lot of our kids are actually sedated or unconscious. So in many situations, the interaction was with the parent or the family or the sibling. And additionally, the pediatric ICU is a high-stress environment for those that work there. We deal with a lot of very difficult, very tragic, very sad situations, as well as some very joyful situations. But 
to have a dog available for the staff when they were having an especially upsetting day or situation was incredible because a staff member can hug a dog and relieve some of that stress before they go on to whatever their next requirement is, uh, where they're probably not going to reach out and, and hug another staff member. It was just incredible to see. He would never lick at an IV or pull at tape or chew on tubing. And, you know, because that's very important for us in the ICU. So many aspects of it were just perfect for our environment. So moving to hear Kara and Lisa's stories, I have to ask you, which stands out for tidings? Something that he did that you witnessed that made you realize just how incredible this program is. It depends on how many hours that you have to, <laughs> to hear me. Um, there, were, there were many joyful events uh, and many happy moments, but there are some that stand out and will forever pull at your heartstrings. So we had a child who had been tragically injured in a car accident and was not going to survive. There were many, many family members in the waiting room for the PICU to support this family. And this child had a sister, and the sister was also out in the, the waiting room. I knew that there was a lot of family waiting there. This wasn't a patient that I was the physician for, so I was just there in my role as the dog handler. And so we went out to the waiting room to see if anyone wanted to interact with the dog. And this child's sister was sitting on the floor, probably, I don't know, 30, 40 feet away from the door. And she was sitting huddled on the floor. She had her hoodie pulled over her head. You could tell she was just hiding from the world. There were lots of people there. She was just hiding from the world, not interacting with anyone. And Tidings walked right to her, right to her, laid down, put his head in his, her lap, and then she sat there and petted him and hugged him maybe a half hour, maybe longer. And I didn't do anything with him. I just hung back. And it was incredible to see, but that was kind of the, the epitome of the perceptive ability that he had and that I got to see every day. But I think that one will stay with me for the rest of my life. I think it'll stay with all of us. You've shared a lot of really powerful stories from, you know, children to the doctors and from your perspective. What about some of the other handlers? Share with us some of the experiences that they've had with their dogs. We have a dog that is with our pain management team, Strider. Strider was chosen perfectly for the environment. He's working a lot with our chronic pain populations. And when Strider gets into a bed, he does it so gingerly. He puts his paw like, is this okay? Or am I, is it too much? You know, it's like almost like he's asking the patient a question by the way he gets into the bed. One of the first patients that Strider had been working with, his handler went into the room. She's a nurse practitioner. So she works very closely with her attending physician and they go into the room and they ask the patient, what's your pain at today? And the patient said a 10 out of 10. And the reason why they wanted a dog is because 
there has been research out there that shows dogs can really help with pain, or especially chronic pain patients. We want to try and avoid using opioids where we can. So trying our non-pharmacological pain management techniques, such as animal-assisted therapy or child life, bubble blowing, different things like that. That's one reason why they wanted a dog. So they go into this room. Her pain is at a 10 and Strider gets in the bed. And four minutes later, they ask the patient, you know, what's your pain? And she says it too. There were no drugs given to the patient. It was just that Strider had gotten into the bed. Being able to distract their brain from whatever they might be feeling is a huge thing that our dogs can do as well and allows them to recognize, okay, if I can focus away from that while the dog's here, what are some techniques that I can employ when the dog might not be there? Mm, I love that. Any other ones? Another one of my favorite stories is from one of our newest dogs who's working with our oncology population. It was is with a patient who has recently lost her hair due to chemotherapy. And with patients that end up losing their hair due to chemotherapy, there can be some body image or self-esteem questions. And so that our dog gets in the bed with the patient and she was discussing sort of her fears with her child life specialist. And all of a sudden, our dog licks her head. Mm. And she says, you know what? If it means that I can get licks, more licks from dogs on my head, then I'm all for it. Oh. It's like the, the <laughs> that little act, uh, the hand that was sitting there like, oh, no, like where dogs aren't supposed to lick. Again, it was like the how she knew that this is what that patient needed is just something that you cannot, you cannot teach. That's right. I think in every story that you shared, it's something that we can not only not teach, but maybe we can't even explain and we don't need to. It's just something that's really beautiful to celebrate. One thing that is really important to mention about our dogs is that we really try to get them involved in therapy. So getting patients up and walking after they've had surgery. So in working and co-treating with our disciplines, physical therapy, occupational therapy, even speech therapy. We have a dog that's in our day rehab. So patients that are coming on a daily basis to work on tasks that are part of their daily living. So getting dressed, putting socks on, you know, putting shirts over their head can be really difficult for um, kids that have experienced an injury, a traumatic brain injury. And so we use our dogs like, well, what if we put some socks on Stella today? Or what if we went and took Stella for a walk or played fetch with her? We are masking therapy as something that is fun. Patients often have no idea that we are doing therapy with them um, because to them it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm getting to brush Stella or I'm getting to pet Stella. Meanwhile, they're utilizing their left hand. That is something that they've had some weakness because of their injury that occurred really getting our dogs involved in the goals that our clinicians have for them. I also think, too, that a hospital can be a scary place for a child and some of the equipment even scarier. I was in radiology one day with Casper and a little boy was having to have a CT scan done. And they said, we'll show you how it works. So pick a stuffed animal and we'll put on the CT scanner. And the little boy said, no, I want to see him, meaning Casper. So we got Casper up on the CT scanner and ran it, you know, back and forth so that the child could see that it was it's just like, a, like, a, yeah, yeah. like a Disneyland ride. We did that often with Casper. So it, it just took the fear factor out of it. 
using our dogs as patients. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like desensitizes them to things that they might be uh, experiencing or might scare them while they're in the hospital. We were fortunate in the ICU that our staff are very open to having the dogs work with the patients. And many of our patients are hooked up to a lot of equipment, a lot of life-saving equipment and equipment that if it becomes detached would be a bad event. And we were able to work with the staff and many of the families with some of these very sick children to actually be able to get tidings up in bed and then to be able to get the child interacting, say sitting up at the side of the bed, even if they were on a ventilator, even if they were on uh, ECMO, which is a, a heart-lung bypass, getting them to sit up and being able to pet the dog. Even those little bits of movement and activity can really do a lot to get a child on the road to to recovery. Patients on ventilators, you know, if they can sit up and interact with a, a dog and potentially be on less sedation, it may mean less time on a ventilator. Oh, that's amazing. You know, you hear the power of this program, Lisa. For you, when you hear that story, to know that beyond Casper, and beyond one dog, these just continued, the entire fleet continued to impact the lives of children, parents, staff members. How does it make you feel when you hear those stories to know what kind of an impact it's making? It's still a little to me unbelievable, to be honest with you. I hear it and I saw it, I experienced it. And yet to me, it still amazes me that it just exploded in such a wonderful, positive way. As Jana was saying, the one thing I never really thought about when this all got started was the impact that it was going to have on staff. I was just thinking about patients and families. And I can't tell you the number of mornings that we were there at shift change and nurses would just literally drop to the floor in the middle of the lobby and lay on top of Casper because they had had such a really rough night. And as Dr. Stockwell was saying about tidings impact on the staff in the pediatric intensive care. So it just warms my heart. It just, it just, to know that we all played a part in making somebody's day just a little bit better. That's right. And that's pretty powerful because in those situations, it feels like nothing can make it feel better. And that's what strikes me is like, what is it? You all have been doing this for years. I now have another dog, Reggie. Um, Bella died a couple years ago. And Reggie's a very different personality than Bella is. Reggie's a bit of a goofball. And that's another side that I think we have seen the softer side of our dogs, but also being able to make a patient laugh. You know, I can't tell you how many times Reggie will be in a patient's room and the giggles will start coming and the parents will start laughing. And it's like, you know, how many times as handlers we hear, I haven't seen my child smile like this in days. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard my child laugh since they've been in the hospital. Sometimes the interaction is very brief. And we sometimes don't think about it as that, that it was just a wonderful, quick interaction that made somebody's day. It was not until Casper died did I realize 
the number of people that from years ago still remember him and honored him and reached out to me. It's really wonderful to know that those people, those kids, they they remember. They remember. And that's one of the good memories of being in a hospital. Just that they're able to have a good memory. And Kara, that makes me wonder, how does it work week by week? You know, you've taken the reins from Lisa and you're running this. What does a typical day look like? Tidings with a dog for the pediatric ICU. We have other dogs that are tied to individual units. That, so they come to work with their handler, who is an employee that works on that unit. So cardiology or transplant. But there are other units and other clinics that don't have dogs on that. Maybe one day they will. That's our goal is to have one on every single unit. But until they get there, um, that's where Reggie and I come in. We handle a lot of what we call consults. So we'll get requests from nurses or other child life specialists or physicians that say, I have this patient. Here's what their goals are. Can you and Reggie come and help us with those? And there are logistical things too, right? Like, let's talk about some of the procedures because you mentioned, Kara, that other hospitals use this as a model. Like, where do the dogs go to the bathroom and where do they live outside of the hospital? We're fortunate ever since the beginning to have really supportive leadership of the Canines for Kids program. So at our various um, locations, we have dog parks that our dogs are able to go to the bathroom. It's important that our dogs sort of have that time. They experience a lot. They absorb some of that trauma other people might be experiencing within the hospital. So we need to make sure that they can let out some of that energy by running around um, before they come back to do some great work inside the hospital. As far as where they live, they live with their handler, who is an employee of the hospital. So as Dr. Stockwell mentioned, she's a physician, but we have handlers that are in all sorts of professions, chaplains, nurse practitioners, child life specialists, um, so we really, as we are choosing handlers, basing it on, you know, how does that person intend to use the dog and what is that dog going to help that person do? There are those logistical things like where they go to the bathroom, where they live. And then there's also the financial piece of this. Who pays for the food? Who pays for the medical bills and things like that? Our program is 100% donor funded. We have very generous supporters of Canines for Kids and Children's Healthcare Care Atlanta that recognize the work that our dogs do. So they support us to make sure that they can receive the best veterinary care, whether that's from when we first get them to all the way to the end of life, um, including chemotherapy treatment for our dogs, as well as food, you know, giving them good quality food, allowing them to have toys and comfortable beds and bowls and all that stuff, we would be able to have that, do that without our donors. Another big part that people don't think too much about is because our dogs are working in a hospital environment, they have to be groomed on a regular basis. So our dogs are all groomed weekly. Yeah. And we have some questions I want to ask from children's social media followers, because you're not alone in loving being a handler. They're actually asking, how is someone chosen? Is it always a children's employee? It is always a children's employee. That person is has typically been an employee of the hospital or children's for two years and usually has a prominent clinical role. So is patient-facing, for example. So they're seeing patients on a daily basis. And another question is, do any of them have a favorite doctor? Dr. Stockwell, you answer that. I'm sure it's tidings. <laughs> tidings had me. <laughs> yeah, tidings had me. That was for sure. It's funny because 
our dogs get used to the environment they're working in. So for tidings, he every day he was in the pediatric intensive care unit, which is a unit, a closed unit on a single floor in the hospital. So each morning we get off the elevator and go through, open up the big electronic doors that go into the unit. And, and he would go running into the unit, go straight to one of the clerk's desks to see if she was there because he knew if she was there, he was going to get this massive rub down back scratch from her. If it was a day she was not working, he would go to that person, take a look at him, and then circle back around in the unit to see, well, who else am I going to go to to go and get a back rub? <laughs> but, you know, she she was Aww. a very special person to him. So if not a particularly bonded physician, they did have some particularly bonded staff members. They do have their routine. I mean, Casper had his places that he would go to, just he knew it by heart. And it's also, and I, I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of all the handlers, how excited they are to go to work. They, it really gives them purpose. And Casper knew as soon as you grabbed the leash where he was going and he, he was going to do it. You know, his day started and ended pretty much in the hospital. That's where he was the happiest. They also, I'm sure, have favorite hospital snacks. That's one of the questions from one of our followers. And what were some favorite hospital snacks of Casper and some of the other dogs? For Casper, it was carrots. <laughs> oh, my dog loves carrots. And we did have staff that had dog biscuits. So he would make his browns and get his treats. But yeah, Casper and his carrots, that was what he was known for. I think they like a lot of snacks. I don't know that there's any that they don't like, <laughs> but I know that they all tend to really enjoy goldfish. That one that can be found oftentimes in the hospital. So if that is something that a patient has, our dogs definitely have eyes on those goldfish. <laughs> they know what they like. Um, we do have one qu final question that, that someone's asking, I want my dog to be a therapy dog. Where can I learn about programs like yours? And also, I would love for you guys to differentiate the difference between a therapy dog and a facility dog. This was one of the questions I get most frequently is about how can my dog become a therapy dog or I want to do something similar. So as mentioned before, you have to be an employee of Children's to, in order to become a handler of one of our facility dogs. And the terms facility dogs and therapy dogs gets used interchangeably a lot, but there is quite a difference between the two. So a therapy dog is usually someone's pet that they have recognized that their dog has a really great temperament, could work really well with kids or adults or whatever the population might be, but feels their dog would be really good for that. But that dog is a pet first and foremost. They're usually a volunteer that's coming in on an hour basis or so. Whereas a facility dog is born and raised from birth in order to do this sort of work. So they are exposed to the sights and sounds of a hospital at a very young age. So like going back to what Lisa was talking about, those dogs that were coming from canine assistance that were being trained at the time, they were being exposed to the hospital before they became a service dog. So whereas our dogs are being taught the hospital environment before they become a facility dog, it also differs in the way we use our dogs. So our facility dogs are used in a goal-directed way. So we are really trying to get them involved in the treatment of patients. So whether that's physical therapy, occupational therapy, 
Whereas a therapy dog, it's usually not individually based. Amazing. Lisa, I want to close with you. Such incredible information. And I'm sure you know very well the legacy of Casper and the Canines for Kids program to be a huge impact on children, on parents, on employees at the hospital. But what about the handlers? What about you? What kind of impact has Casper and this program had on your life? Well, he changed my life. It was the most rewarding thing I've ever done. To be able to have a bond with that kind of a dog and make an impact like that is remarkable. And I hope that everybody wants to make that something like that happen. Everybody wants to be able to help somebody else. And the fact that we had such a close bond, and I know now that the handlers, not just within Children's, but those other pediatric hospitals around the nation are having the same experiences that we have and the same impact that we have. So Casper's legacy, Canines for Kids, it will go on forever. Well, it certainly is doing that right now and has been for so many years. Lisa, Kara, Dr. Stockwell, thank you for the incredible work that you have done and continue to do. It's just beautiful to hear about it. Thank you, Lynn. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. What incredible stories. What an incredible program. To learn more about the furry fleet of facility dogs at Children's, read their hilarious bios, and learn about ways to support the Canines for Kids program, visit choa.org slash podcasts, where we'll have links to all of these resources, videos of the dogs in action, and so much more. What a pleasure to have spent this season with you. I'm Lynn Smith, and this has been Hope and Will a parenting podcast from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta.